Hi, I'm Bryce. And I'm Will. And this is Side Quests. Trying to play Back to Black on it, but it's not working. Wait, trying to play what? Uh, back to Black on the on the stick. What is Back to Black? Amy Winehouse. So then I was trying to do the melody here, but mm. medium-sized metric DAO is not not a great instrument. Metric DAO. Oh, it's measured. It, yeah. You purchase. I just can't remember. I just can't remember what its dimensions are. So I was gonna be. I was gonna call it like eighth inch, but then I remembered it was purchased in a metric dimension. <laughs> Some number of millimeters. <laughs> yeah. So. What is it like? It's not eighth inch. Like it's, it's certainly it's actually probably quarter inch, right? Because eighth inch is my headphone jack. Oh yeah, yeah. If you oh wow, if you think of your headphone jack uh-huh. as an eighth inch, then that's like a really good. Right, and then you have. So that's a quarter inch, like approximately. No, quarter inch is. Um, I don't have that. The big headphone, headphone. jack. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, a, I have but that's, one. At right, home. But that's about that size. No, it's way bigger than this. No, uh, it's a little bigger than. No, it's a it's only a little. It, the headphone jack is not much. I'm guessing this is five millimeter. That's, really? Yeah, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, it's fair. Millimeters are so small that I think they're impossible to know what, how big they are. Like, <laughs> like they're so small that like one millimeter like is no distance. Hmm. And so anything you multiply by zero is still zero. So like a hundred millimeter is a hundred times zero. Right, exactly. So it's not big at all. Yeah, so that's the problem Even with... Even though it's yay big. Yeah, that's the problem with millimeters. Hmm. Uh, yeah, as a base unit. Which right. is why they're not... The, right, they're not the base unit. The millimeter, the meter yeah. is yeah. the... And the centimeter is fine. It's a fine unit. But right. being like, how many millimeters is this? Well, it's like, I don't know. It's either zero... It, yeah, it's an infinite number of millimeters. All right. Well, that is a nice introduction to our podcast, uh, which is called... Blank. Sitting here at this table, ready yeah. to have a conversation on <laughs> on record. On yeah, well we've already we've already started recording, so we're on record now. Mm, on record. No. Um. All right. So I have a secret topic. Right. For this one. Yeah. Which and is, we- and I think it's a good one to start with, which is a video game canon. Oh, okay. It seems good because. It's good because what better than to talk about all of the video games in the past that are worth talking about. Right. And of course, there's a, a, it's hard not to, not to think of all the video game canons, um, which is like <laughs> fire Mar- bullet bills yeah, in the past. Mario is like the um, most, yeah, it's definitely the biggest canon. I believe that um, in the, the, the Donkey Kong games, you, you travel by, by oh, canon. Also in Final Fantasy VII has the whole city that is mostly a canon. Yeah. I have I, I don't actually think this is true, but for some reason I'm having a memory of in Monkey Island. You traveling from island to island on in a cannon. So I've never played Monkey Island. Yeah, and I think this is not a fake, a real memory. Um, and I think that it is. I'm huh. conflate, mysteriously conflating Donkey Kong and Monkey Island. Huh. I've like, never conflated those, but I no. Never, I the only the only connection a, I have here is cannons. There's a pirate guy, right? He looks like a swashbuckler. If you were to say swashbuckler, are we talking about Monkey Island? Monkey Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Guybrush Threepwood. <laughs> what is his name? Guybrush Threepwood. Guybrush Threepwood. That's a really good name. Yeah. No, it's the Sierra people are good at like silly names. Yeah. What's the What's the name of the guy from um, uh, Space Quest? It's Roger Wilco. Oh, oh, really? Oh, man. I knew that name is, like, buried in my psyche, but yeah. I could not... Wow, that's funny. But I'm actually speaking only of actual canons now. Right, right, of actual canons, uh, which is very different from the topic yeah. that we're discussing, although it's very good. Canons in Braid fire mm. your the little brain Yeah, the, the Goombas, yeah. The They're bra- Goombas. The Braid Goombas. We think of them as Goombas because they're the base unit of from Mario that if you jump on, they die. Yeah, well, and because, I mean, because Braid has so many, right, because it has piranha plants. Um, right, it, and it has even references to Mario with yeah. its princesses and the other Yeah, castle. and I, I it, like, it's, it's very explicitly, like, a, you know, different artistic style version of the same, right. the same monster. Um, so, if we're going to start a video game canon... I, there's, there's like a bunch of questions about like how far back do you go? I mean, all the way. I mean, so the thing about video right, games, I mean, we can go, we can go back as far as we went. 
right? Like I or I like I, I probably shouldn't. It's not meaningful to talk about games I haven't played. Um, hmm. Right, but I don't know if we're necessarily the be-all, end-all of sure. video game discussion. I'm for sure we are not. Right, yeah, that's uh, that's clear. Right. Um, Based on the fact that you said a game that I should have known, and I've like I've played that once. I've seen screenshots of it a bit, which is Monkey Island. Um, the other thing that is probably good for a moment is to like sort of define a canon. Mm-hmm. Um, which is sort of, I don't know, it's like what you should, so in literature, it's sort of a standard set of literature you should have read if you have read all the things that everyone has read. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I literally don't actually know the origin of the term, and I, you know, I am curious whether the origin of the term canon is related to, like, the, the musical like form and D, yeah, um, right, because that because they're spelled spelled the same way, right? Um, I assume that it has something to do with Christianity, because hmm. like so much of our Western vocabulary does. Like I, I think there's a church canon, but I'm I'm but I'm not sure. Um, I, yeah, I think of it as as the things the things that you're expected to know. Canonized is a thing. Oh that right, I yeah, yeah. From my youth. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, when we take a break, we will. We can look, look up those that things. up. But I, I think it's at least like the the kind of colloquial version of the term, like in in like conversation. Uh, I, I think is like the things people expect other people to know about. Mm. That, not that you would expect everyone to know about, but if if someone is like educated in a field, you would expect them to know these things. Right, and that but, more or less lines like up with the base texts. Me, like my my notion right. of what it is, and you expect more people than that to know that those works exist and even perhaps a one sentence synopsis right you're like faust you're like uh there was a devil the deal and there's soul and angel shoulders shoulder angels and shoulder by that by that other guy that non-shakespeare guy yeah and i've never read faust and and so this you know, maybe even means that I, I have a limitation in my discussion of literature with other people. Um, but I at least understand that this exists. And it, it came up recently uh, because there's a, a Faust section of what's it? The Witcher. The Witcher, one of the Witcher mm-hmm. games. I don't remember right. which. Which? Uh, or even an expansion or something. But it's a Polish version of Faust, which was. German, I think. Um, I, yes, I believe that's true. And and the, it was like their version of sort of the same story, and who know neither one of those is the official one. That's the other thing that's really confusing because uh, in literature there's all these folk origins of some of these stories, and you're like, well, there is a canon version, right, of um, that. Yeah. So right. There's a, there's also the. There's the the fandom definition of canon, mm. um, which is the things that are really true in our fictional world, right? Like Star Wars um, is a great example. Yeah, um, and and there's like the things that are canon and the things that aren't canon. Um, so there's a sense that like canon means means real, um, but it means real in an obviously like fictional context. Um, mm. Right, but that's what the, that's an internal logic. Yeah, 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 that is not necessarily related to other works at all is it canon that the force is metachlorians right which but how does that relate to star trek you know even in the same genre right you have you have problems of like that doesn't actually mean much as it relates to the kind of canon that i think we're trying to talk about which is not braid brain goombas getting fired out of them but like what games you should have played in order to have a discussion. You know, what, is, what is like the base thing we expect from from people who understand the medium? Um, right. Jumping back to like how you know how we, we define the canon, um, how far back you go is an interesting question. What is a game? Like what is a video game? Is Risk part of video game canon? Is D and D part of video game canon? Right. Um, I've definitely played a video game of Risk. Right. And like so, you know, so so much of video game RPGs is 
like directly descendant from D&D, does that make D&D part of part of the set of things we think that people who are trying to understand video games should should have experience with or should understand? Right. Um, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure. Um, I also think that there's that like D&D. Yeah. So there's, there's so much back and forth there. Right. Um, right. And and like the Baldur's Gate are games are right. straight there's early like mid mid 90s um computer or like western computer rpgs there's a, there's the ssi um there's the gold box games and i believe there's a silver box there's you know a number of of series that are referred to by the color of their box you know in a world where we have primarily digital distribution is already um, funny and anachronistic. But even then, there's the orange box, which was oh, that's true. primarily digitally distributed, as far as me personally is concerned. Right, yeah, so, I'm not, I've never seen an orange box, but I did buy, buy yeah, that. I have no memory of a box ever yeah. when it came to the orange box. Right, but it but, must be re- referenced. I I don't know anything about the gold. Yeah, so, so th- there was these these games. They were by SSI uh, Strategic Simulations Incorporated. Um, they did a bunch of D and D computer games. They were, I, as far as I'm aware, the first. They were the first official D and D computer games, hmm. and so they tried to do this like very slavish recreation of what I think was. I'm not sure, but I think it was probably like a D and D first edition rules into a computer thing um mm. you know and like they among other things like this means that there's a lot of things that like you really kind of don't care about that like don't make very much sense and you're like well do i like you know the encumbrance rules like it you know i'm pressing forward every time i press forward i go a certain distance mm. does that mean i should move what does it mean to move slower um, <laughs> in what, that's funny um there is a if i'm carrying more i i recently um watched the Noah Gervais retrospective. He He's a YouTuber who is pretty great, uh, who does these um, retrospectives of series. Um, and he went through all of the Baldur's Gate games. He's really thorough and very detailed. Anyway, he had a particularly good description in the beginning of that video about um, how uh, the first Baldur's Gate was a translation of tabletop right. D&D rules to a computer. Like, right. how do we, you as a player, play D&D without a dungeon master present who can adapt? And, and like, there are some limitations to this because computers have to be able to predict what your choices are when a... Dungeon Master just has to react to them. Mm-hmm. It's very well thought through and worth watching. The main point is that he's talking about how these, this is an adaptation of a different, a totally different type of playing a game. Right. Which it is in some ways very suited for and in some ways very unsuited to. And, and how like, how trying to cross media, it gains things and it loses things. In the process, and it's it's very good. But is D and D necessary to understand? Right, them? and that's yeah. There's a, there's a whole there's an enormous set of interesting questions there. You know, we both interact with children, um, teach children, um, and one of the things that we see children do and, and help children do is um, design games. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I have noticed in my life as an educator is that children design board games with very video gamey. Mm elements um, and video games early on borrowed from board games because those are the most common games um, and that there's this like cross medium back and forth. The primary thing that video games do to board games is handle complexity and one of the things that I have noticed from children who play a lot of video games is that when they think about how a game should be they add a lot of complexity mm. right um, like Towns is is my <laughs> my example here when he like starts to describe a set of mechanics oh. um, like I'm, I'm trying to come up with an example, but I can't. But it's very clear that, that those mechanics are are video game mechanics. He okay. So one thing that kids do, and I'm not naming any particular children, but um, one thing that kids do is, especially when they're below a certain age, is design games that they will always win. Mm-hmm. Um, which which is really interesting, and it explains a lot when it comes to like power fantasy in video game. Yeah, and I I absolutely agree. I think that there's this. 
there's a way in which the games that people play influence the games that people make. Mm. Um, and so early on, video games are extremely influenced by certain kinds of board games and mm. in particular extremely influenced by role-playing games because mm. i don't know because like video games are made by a bunch of nerds um and they were playing D D. especially early games were made by yeah people who had played because because D D. it was at the late 70s or early 80s yeah that's my understanding um I, mean, I wasn't alive so um right uh, the other thing I would like to say is about Kickstarter and some of the games that come out of there. Okay. And how Kickstarter games, I've played a number of board games that were came out of Kickstarter. And some amount of the time, those come out with some of the same levels of complexity. And not to put down games made by people on Kickstarter, but that are similar to the ones that are made by children there's, there's a naivete right? right like it's and it's a kind of courageous naivete where you're like we could just do this <laughs> right. um well and one thing i've thought about it's possibility space you would like there to be so many possibilities for you to do and in a lot of ways this comes from D, where you can do literally anything you right can like think that, of that's the charm of the game or right. try to do any yeah. of those things and you can fail miserably and a Right, and when, and when you describe the like appeal of role-playing games, um, like that's approximately what you say. You say, it's a game where there's, you're in a world and you can do whatever you want and something will happen. Um, yeah, and that is actually um, one of the things that I think is so good about Magic the Gathering, which has many merits and many flaws. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's so good about it is that the possibility space is enormous. Right. It's it's astronomical at this point because right. I learned how to play magic when I was eight. I was right. eight years old. And at this time in my life, I am teaching eight-year-olds how to play and they dig it as much as I did when I was eight. And it was so great. Um, I mean, it is, among other things, it is like literally Turing complete. Um. <laughs> I mean, you have to have really specific card. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah there are, uh, someone has designed a universal Turing machine um, <laughs> instantiated in magic. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, it involves moving counters from like plus oh. one plus one counters from place to place. But Yeah, that makes sense. And you probably can't have an opponent who disagrees with you. Yeah, no, I wouldn't you couldn't implement it in a game, but right. That's amazing. So possibility space is something that we want Often, especially in power fantasies, mm -hmm. we want to be able to do right. anything. Right, and, and and yeah, and I, I guess I the phrase power fantasy there is like almost not entirely right. Mm. Um, it's it's a it's a phrase that's, that's used a lot, and it's like mostly used in, in disparaging ways. Um, and oh, that's and really that's true. and that's good in a certain way because I actually I think it's great to disparage people for like wanting a lot of power um like i think i think that's that's we should not be encouraging that but like a lot of the you know a lot of video games create this this circumstance in which you are a powerful creature or a powerful thing and you can influence things and you're strong and you can kill things and whatever but there's also like i'm, I'm thinking of, of rock band um mm. right like rock band tapped into an entirely different kind of fantasy than anyone had previously made video games around and it was almost as much. It's not quite a power fantasy, but it's it's a it's a like, it's a something fantasy. But it's not entirely not a power. Yeah, fantasy. no, it's, that's absolutely I true. I am really good at guitar. Yeah, yeah. But I am not really good at guitar. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. Pow, pow, like is a competence thing. Um, and it's funny, right? Because you in fact become really good at guitar hero, and and then being really good at guitar hero is its own skill, which is it's, distinct from being good at guitar. It's one um, of the reasons why in rock band when they introduced the drums, uh, drums. If you get good at the drums in right, you rock band, you're, you're now a, a drummer. A little bit good at the drums yeah, in like, real life. Like you're a drummer. That's cool. You're you not. Can, you're not a great drummer. Right. You're not the best drummer ever. <laughs> but in fact, you can hit things on rhythm, right. which is the skill. Right. That's. Primarily the skill, um, and then there's, you know, improvisation um, on top of that, right. and there's and, and a lot like, of other skills that you need. And in, in Guitar Hero, yeah, like, and in fact, there there's must be some overlap. Like, I haven't, I've played the guitar and I've played Guitar Hero, but I have not, never gotten great at either of them. Um, 
Yeah. But there must be some overlap because, in fact, the skill right. of Guitar Hero is wiggling your fingers at the right time. <laughs> um. As is guitar, I see. <laughs> um, I, I sort of, once Rock Band came out, I was so much more interested in playing the drums in Rock Band. Yeah. Because I was more interested in learning to actually play the guitar than I was in play learning to play the plastic. Yeah, controller. no, I absolutely agree. I I never wanted to play Guitar Hero. I always wanted to. If people were playing Rock Band, I was like, "Can I be the drummer? Like, I want to be the drummer. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing that feels like playing an instrument to me." <laughs> and <laughs> it is like it yeah. is. And I've played a little bit of drums since I played that, and it, it was yeah. it was good. And there's like a there's a way in which knowledge about something like breaks the breaks the game right like mm. maybe one of the reasons that i can't get really into guitar here is because i have tried to learn to play the guitar and like i can play the guitar a little bit um mm. but i'm not super great at it but playing guitar hero doesn't feel like playing the guitar yeah to me i i've heard that people who played the original guitar in the songs in guitar hero found playing guitar hero was hard Mm, like mm -hmm. on their song right they originated the original track with yeah yeah which made me feel good inside <laughs> i was like oh well, i can play that the, yeah well i mean no i never could play that but <laughs> you know at a certain point it's still a game right and so like yeah there's, there's a way in which knowledge of the of the the simulation domain makes you like it can make you not enjoy the game, but it can also make you enjoy enjoy it more. Oh, like um, the the, re the actual counterpart. Like if you're right. a real fencer, right, and playing um, any game involving a sword whatsoever, right, like one of the many thousands. Um, I would like to think of one game right now. Yeah, um, Zelda. Um, Zelda, great. Uh, <laughs> right. So, but it's funny, right, because there are there are games that are better that feel more and less like sword fighting. Um, Prince of Persia, like, mysteriously, you know, feels a lot like sword fighting because it has an extremely limited moveset. Right. Um, right. And so you have a very small number of decisions that have... The impacts that they, those decisions have are, you know, quite... I don't know, they're... They feel correct. Right. Like, well, obviously you're not fencing, but it... And, and Prince of Persia involves timing. Yeah. As does sword fighting. You're right. like... Ha I mean, it's one only one part of it, but... Um, how to swing my sword at the right time so that it hits my opponent and they aren't in the position right. to block. Yeah, and Prince of Persia has, I mean, I haven't, I haven't entirely investigated it, but I, I think it has like a, a pretty, a pretty like discre discretized set of timings where mm. it isn't completely moment to moment precise, but there's something about the, the like high grain size of its time chunks that makes mm. it that makes it feel like strategic in in a way that is different from, like a lot, I don't know that, that 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 somehow resembles the practice of you know sport fencing, which is obviously different from the practice of sword fighting. Um, <laughs> where like like fencing itself is a game that's laid on top of a, an actual activity. Fencing yeah. is like a sword fighting sim yeah. in the real world. Right, and like... and you get good at fencing, and you have this power fantasy that you're good at sword fighting. And in fact, you're probably not that good at sword fighting. Um, there's, a, there's a great bit in um, the Gentleman Bastard series. The first one is The Lies of Locke Lamora, which are great. But there's a great bit in the first book where there's one of the characters goes off to train with a sword master, and he's, he, he like gets there a little early, and he's still doing a class with some fencers and, and he says I'm teaching them how the art of fencing you I'm going to teach how to kill people with a sword mm -hmm. um, and I just love that distinction between the two of those things and taking that and saying that the you know the fencing is a sword fighting simulation right and video games are maybe even a fencing simulation right, yeah, yeah there's, there's... And in, ge in general, right, like games, like we've invented a lot of games that are simulations of other things. Sports in general are some kind of abstraction of something, right? They're an abstraction of some kind of conflict. Football is yeah, yeah. armies ramming into each other. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's some abstraction of some conflict and we have made a bunch of rules around it. And like, that's what a game is. Um, mm. And they're like very, very prototypical games. Um, and they, in, in many ways, like sports resemble video games more than board games resemble video games because mm. they involve this real-time element in which, like, you know, 
physical skill um, is right. uh, is in many cases more important than certainly than timing has been yeah. made much more important. Although I um, not entirely like there's um, uh, I completely forget the name. It's a submarine simulation in which you play in real time. The gimmick is that. I don't know if it's gimmick. It's awesome. Gimmick impl- has this negative connotation. But right. hook. Uh, hook. The hook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. Hook and gimmick are... They're the same word. The, the sa- they have the same denotation. Yeah. But definitely different connotation. Um, so the hook is that uh, in order to make your move count, you have to shout it out loud for the other team to hear. And if you shout your command, then the other people can respond to it, can react to it. And you have somebody on the other team in the other sub who is listening into your radio communication. So as you give commands, they can mm. respond to it and they, they record your calls of what's happening. And as a result, you can uh, kind of track where they are and you have the same map uh, and you have a transparent sheet over top of it. Do you do you have like a overhead marker that you? You have a transparent there? sheet over the map, and you have a dry erase marker. I guess I, I guess that makes sense. I, I really wanted it to be like a a, a wet erase overhead projector style marker, um, but but they just don't make them anymore because they're not because they right. figured out how to put the solvent in. Right. Yeah. That's. I slightly disappointed. But. In high school. <laughs> I was a teacher's aide for Madame King, my French teacher, uh, who maybe you've met, and uh, I had to wash transparencies mm, yeah. for like, and and when I started, she had a stack that was like six inches tall. Well, that, inches. that that pile you're making with your hands is very large. I think that's maybe six inches. I, I also had to grade quizzes and things like that, but washing those transparencies off was like a decent, yeah. sizable portion of my duties. Yeah, well, and it turns out the dry erase, you know, doesn't solve any of those problems. Hey, you still have to wipe them off. <laughs> <laughs> no. But I definitely had to run them under the sink. Mm. Um, and this was my first experience with a chair that could raise itself tall enough that it was great for me to sit in. <laughs> um, so I could like sit at a counter, like a tall counter. And I wanted one of those chairs ever since. And there's, it's right behind you, <laughs> the one I finally bought. <laughs> and, and somehow it ended up in my house. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, tangent over. <laughs> So there's a lot of discussion here, obviously. Um, um, I wonder whether what the right direction to approach, like mm. the the question of like developing, like is the right direction um, chronological, right? That, that's what mm. leaps to mind. It's like how to build a camp. Yeah, right. Like you know, do we, do we just go back and we're like, well, obviously Mario Brothers is on it, um, and Duck Hunt because it was on the same cartridge. <laughs> um, uh, also, it is... Um, no, it's, it's the first light gun game or something well, like no, that, it's, right? It's like a peripheral game. Yeah. It's a game that like that you played with a peripheral Yeah. that was a very specialty object. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it is obviously important in its own right. Um, right, but, but mostly because of that goddamn dog. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. everyone who's played it... Yeah. Although, to um, everyone who's ever played it, if you point the light gun at a black piece of paper and pull the trigger, you will kill both ducks every time. And well, and, then, yeah, and that's, that's another kind of interesting piece of the, the, the light gun, because I think that for most of us, um, we played that game and didn't question how it worked until like later in our life. And it then, was magic. And then at some point later in your life, you're like, wait... That gun couldn't send something to the TV. Right, you're like, um, why can't I do that now with my Xbox 360? Yeah. Then you're like, whatever. like, wait, the TV, what was going on? And then and you think it through and you're like, well, there must be, like, there must be a camera in the gun and it must, it must be reading something from the television. Um, so, so people who are programmers think these thoughts. <laughs> I'm not sure that everyone thinks these thoughts, but us both being programmers, I know we yeah. have both have but, the, but, but, but these But I think, I think there's, there's this moment when you're like, how did that gun work? Because my understanding 
you realize that your childhood version of it working was essentially magic and made no sense. Well, it was, it can see the duck. Yeah. I had, I always had this thought that if I point it down, down the side of the gun, there's something that can like mm. see the duck. This was always part okay. of, of my Which Which actually is very close to the truth. It's close. Um, it's not... Yeah, no, it can see something. Right. But in real life, it can see whether it's white or black. Right. Um, and there's fancier things going on in the background that I didn't understand. But, but, but if you were to remake that game today, um, in fact, you could make that peripheral um, do like computer vision stuff and it could recognize whether it was pointing at the duck I, or not. I could um, do it in scratch. Yeah, like it would be, yeah, uh, you know, and so... Actually, now I want to do it in scratch. <laughs> no, that's, that's a good point <laughs> with a webcam. Especially because it's scratch day. Oh uh, yeah. Today, while we're recording this. Yeah. So 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 right. So like you start you start chrono maybe chronologically, and you're like, well, Super Mario Brothers is there, but let's go back further. Um, Breakout is important. Um, Pong is important. There are some games I've never played that I'm aware of are important. There were some early games that were programmed like on the oscilloscope. Um, right. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. I, I think Space War maybe is yeah. the name of one of these games, but yeah, Space War is the first game that. They say is the first video game. Right, yeah. Sometimes, I, Crash Course does a Crash Course video game series, which mm. I highly recommend. Um, it's fun, and it's actually Crash Course games, not Crash Course video games. And so it goes all the way back to uh, like Parcheesi and card games, and it's it's pretty broad. Uh, and all of the Crash Courses are fantastic, and I love them, and I love them. That's it. That's the whole story on Crash Course. Um, but, but yeah, so like Space War is game. Um, I'm familiar with it from reading things. I certainly haven't played it. In some abstract theoretical way, I would put it on the canon because I'm aware of its like status as like an important thing. But I, but it would be silly for me, in a certain way, it would be silly for me to do so because I can't say anything about it. And I, I can't be like, everyone should play this game because among other things, I don't even know, did it run on some engineer's oscilloscope? The important thing is should you is the first work of literature ever written in the canon of literature uh no sure oh but you know maybe it would be if we knew what it was or if we were closer to it right like um, like we have a lot of sense of the history of video games um right. and there's no like you know we there's no need to discard it um but but at the same time like we can acknowledge it and move on because, like, I don't have shit to say about Space War and neither do you because we didn't play it. There's another connection that we have not yet made, which is, is there even a film canon? Mm. Okay. Film is about 75 years older-ish mm -hmm. than video games, which, in the scheme of literature... Right. Is, yeah, it's like, essentially the same age. It's the same age. Um, In hundreds of years, when we're talking about these same things, you're like, oh yes, video games came first, did you know? Right. Interestingly, despite the amazing popularity of video games, even the idea is visual media that we can, you know, represent in... Uh, a non-interactive medium versus visual media that we, you know, have in an interactive medium. And of course there are like, completely discursively, there's like the tangent of, I believe there are like, what are essentially choose-your-own-adventure laser discs, which is a strange form of video game. Worth talking that about. That exists. For sure. Um. And I was just watching this video on, so I was just watching this video on YouTube about basic. The programming language. The programming language. Yeah. The 8-bit guy is the guy who is doing this video. He made this video about BASIC, the language, and he talked about different computers that run it and why it was popular and how there was a book that was like, oh yeah, you can program your games. And most people, a lot of people originally just like typed in from books right, yeah. their own right. I, I I did. I did a little tiny bit, but I don't think I ever got as far as games because we got a Commodore 64 after I had a PlayStation 1. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's odd timing. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really weird. Well, that's my dad for you. Getting um, 
ancient technology, which was 10 years old, which isn't that unreasonable. No, it's, it's funny now, right? Because um, you can remember being a kid and being like, I'm going to use this 10-year-old computer. Ha ha, that's a million years ago. Um, but like, you know, now... I mean, 2007. Yeah, computers? like the computer that I the computer that I have now is probably five years old, and it's like what I consider my like new nice computer. Uh, and yeah, 2007. Like I'm, I abstractly know that I couldn't use a 10 year old computer, right? Like, like I there probably is a T61 floating around this apartment, or at least at work, um, that uh, <laughs> wouldn't that isn't reasonable to try to use for day to day purposes. But at the same time, like it doesn't it doesn't seem old to me. It's just like that computer I used to have. Right. Um. I also think that computers have slowed down in their aging. Yeah. As time has gone on. I mean, so Moore's Law is still holding despite everyone believing that it might not the next time that yeah. time and period passes. Uh, Moore's Law is the number of transistors yeah, it's, it's double. It's, yeah. yeah, and I think there's like very specific... Moore's Law is about transistors. Um, and it gets generalized to being be being about speed. And when, when when people want to say things about Moore's law, they will like take more and less strict versions of what of what the law is to you know. Yeah, it's it's something about a number of months, and it's like um, ten, right? Twenty months. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it was. I think he initially said it was like every six months, and then he revised it to every year. Um, and it has okay. has been approximately every year. Yeah, um, it's. It's a, it's that the number of transistors on a chip will double every every year, um, yeah, or every every n amount of time. But I, I think it became a year. What was that, Jeff? Oh, eighteen. Jeff months. says eighteen months. It's very likely true. Yeah, we'll trust Jeff. Um, um, right, and yeah, and and you don't know who Jeff is. And it turns out that that like transistors aren't the only important thing, and like about speed um right you could make a claim that like moore's law is continuing to happen if you're like oh well transistors aren't getting smaller but we've invented you know ssds and they're faster or you know like there's there's so many different right different we're running directions well we're running into a couple of problems there one is that quantum tunneling is becoming a problem like and so we're trying to figure out to make that into an asset but we're right now it's still just a problem where electrons can just move through the amount of space that we've decided electrons shouldn't move through due to, uh, you know, normal, hmm. regular, everyday electrons moving through space problems and moving through resistors problems. Um, and so quantum tunneling is becoming a problem. And the other problem is... No, I don't remember what the other I really is. try not to think about electrons when I'm trying to think about electronics, but occasionally you have to. Although, although the... One of the more insightful, not insightful, one, one of the more like instructive things that I have uh, heard uh, about like computer speed uh, involved like taking a ruler between your RAM and your oh yeah and your CPU and that being be like um, being like well it's gonna like let's look at the speed you know the speed right. of light and how we can do this many operations a second but they have to get to RAM. Right. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you were telling me. I so think. how how it's gonna take at least as long, uh, right. you know? But you can like literally look at it with a with a ruler, and you can get pretty good. Right, because the electrons, electric fields propagate at this approximately the speed of light. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not exactly the right. speed of light, but, but it's we can we can at least random. we can call that the the upper bound and right. be safe. And so we can <laughs> say if they were going at the speed of light, which they aren't quite, right? Um, then. You can hand out uh, nanoseconds in lengths of wire that are like a foot long. Yeah. Um, which means that if your RAM is so far away from your processor, you just can't do that process right. that and, fast. Right, and it turns out that like these numbers are very, you know, these speeds are very high. But then you talk about gigahertz and then you're talking about very large numbers of things happening per second yeah. um and and so you're you know dividing very large numbers by very large numbers and and then well they get small again um <laughs> yeah so so there's some definite limits to the computation that we can foresee at this time unless we can somehow make electric fields propagate faster or um solve problems you using quantum effects and right. Which we're trying. Yeah. 
we humans. I right, I, and I assume that all of these things, like I, I assume progress is happening here, and why you know it still takes a second to load Microsoft Word um, 10, 15 years later. Um, is I mean, Microsoft Word is nowhere near as small as it was 10 or 15 years right, ago. Right, but it's a disingenuous question. I know a lot of the answer. Um, <laughs> um, the, you know, the answer is we have optimized our software development processes for writing software rather than for running it, and that's actually probably for the best. Um, hmm. Like, we could have made software run faster, but instead we made it easier to write software. Um, huh. And we get more out of that. So I think it probably is for the best for the time being. But at a certain point, we're going to come up with yeah. some way. And, and I think that most people are never going to experience that. I think it's going to be compilers that are going to be what happens. Like, like, writing your game in Python isn't necessarily going to be a thing that people do in the future. But maybe they will, but somebody will have written some Python compiler that turns your Python code into amazingly even faster than C code to beat right, whatever yeah, text I mean, specs I, we're trying to sneak under, limbo under. Yeah, right, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know, and I'm very much don't have the expertise to like say much about that. There, there's a sense in which people write software up to the limits of the hardware, um, and they will spend they will spend all of the hardware. Right, and they right. will spend it either on an outcome that is visible to the user, hmm. or an outcome that is useful for the programmer. Right. Um, and to the extent that there isn't, right, like Microsoft Word, like there's not that much more that's visible to the user. Um, hmm. Like you can keep adding features, but they're not like flashy um, things, or you know, for the operating system or whatever. Um, programs are programs are still going to spend all the hardware. Um, hmm. They're going to they're going to do it to make their lives easier if there isn't something that makes the user's lives easier that they can spend it on. Right, but I also think that no programmer is doing that. Right. It's, it's more like they're using the tools that are available, but you know, even when, when we're working on a game, we're using Unity, and we don't know yeah, I don't most know. of what's going yeah, on right. below um, our level of abstraction that we're working right. on. Though what we are doing is choosing to use Unity. Right. Um, and, and that is in, presumably in itself like a, a very computationally expensive choice. You know, and one of the reasons we're saying that is we're like, well, we're going to make a game that I expect will be able to run somewhat inefficiently on all the hardware we want to run it on. Um, mm -hmm. So we don't, like, no one needs to write any C code. Yeah, I don't really want to write any C like, code. Like, if we... If, if our game design was different and we were like, oh my god, we really need to push the limits, then we'd be like, well, shh. Well, shit, I guess I better, you know, learn how renderers work. Um, right. Uh, so that I can try to make the renderer faster. Right? And, and a lot of early, this is true of film as well, a lot of, um, uh, looping back to the canon, but a lot of early game stuff is driven by tech and driven by, by like, can we do this technical right. thing? And, and then, oh, we can, and that's cool. I think we are now more or less in a, in a kind of like golden age of video game design where tech is no longer the driving force for, for game design. And that's very clear when, you, when you're looking at um, graphics. I mean, in early, you know, even all through the 90s and even before and a little later, it was, oh my God, how do we get graphic fidelity? Right. How do we do it? Because you physically couldn't. You couldn't make Call of Duty in the days yeah. of Wolfenstein. Um, right, you didn't have that many pixels. Right. There weren't enough pixels. And you couldn't, you didn't have the processing. Yeah, power. you couldn't allocate, if you had them, you wouldn't know what to do with them. So, right. So, you could not do that in the days, right. in, in those days. So, you, you couldn't make Call of Duty in the day of Wolfenstein because uh, just the hardware could not manage that amount of, ca you know, calculation. Right. Well, I mean, and, and graphics cards weren't that good and and it, it was not set up to be able to make that kind of game yet and so they they did the best they could and so they did sprite renders for wolfenstein yeah there's a there's actually a really interesting question which is like could you actually make call of duty mm. and what, what i mean is to what extent is the graphical fidelity of call of duty fundamental to its gameplay um right like because you know modern modern game design also just has a lot of mechanics ideas that weren't present before and some of them are based on tech and some of them aren't um, right. right. So, like, could you right now take Call of Duty and 
duplicate it in such a way that it ran on the NES, right? Like, obviously, it would have a, a different set of graphics. It would have a different set of sound effects. Um, right. But, you know, could you take what what someone who likes the game feels is the core gameplay um, and port it port it backwards in time? Um, and the answer might be yes, um, huh. because because there's a lot of there's a lot of game design stuff which has happened over those years. A lot of game design things have been standardized, but not necessarily have become newly physical, physically possible. But some things have just become newly physically possible. So it's that that's a, a really interesting question that I don't have a particularly good answer to. I mean, and Call of Duty is, you know, for me at least, an extremely bad example because I never played it and. Don't know the genre well. <laughs> I, I played Modern Warfare quite a bit. I think I own it. I have an Xbox 360, and I think I bought it. <laughs> and I think I played it. I know I played it a lot, but I can't remember if I played it at a friend's house or at my very own house, but I'm pretty sure some combination of the two. I mean, draw distance is a thing that has increased. and um, Yeah. At the same time... Um, in a Wolfenstein is, is quite early, right? But in 1999, uh, Quake came out. And I would claim that Quake does not look fundamentally different from contemporary first-person shooters' interior spaces. Hmm. Um, I, th I think there's like a big jump from being hmm. inside, indoors, and being outdoors. Um, and and, and that, that looks very, very different. And Quake, you know, didn't do that. But, but that... In 1999, the collective video game world made Quake, and that it is not that uh, contemporary first-person shooters aren't fundamentally large departures from that. Um, like mm. graphically, I mean, um, like a lot of gameplay things have changed. But if you if you showed someone today this game, they'd be like, "Oh, it doesn't look that good." Mm. Um, but like, it doesn't look that bad, right? Um, well, and that's one of the major things that happened in relatively recent years is people made started making the distinction between aesthetics and graphics. Right. And Extra Credits is a great video on this mm -hmm. topic. But it's why we suddenly decided that 8-bit graphics were acceptable to make games on the indie market. Right, and, yeah. And, and like... Triple A is still all beautifully polished. Yeah, right. But whatever. but people have have among other things realized that that they're like that you can have extremely beautiful low fidelity graphics and 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 very ugly high fidelity ones. Right. right? Like there's the I don't actually play contemporary AAA games nearly at all. Um, but I feel like people disparage uh, a lot of first-person shooter games is like this like uniform dull brown um you know the brown of realism where where it's it's you know extremely boring or, right like it looks like a real person there but right. why is that person wearing all brown in front right. of a brown background and yeah like yeah getting shot up by brown bullets right in a muddy field muddy field yeah they're just it's like swamp monsters everywhere. Um, right, and, and, and I'm, I'm only parroting things that I feel like I've heard other people say because I like, literally don't play these games. Um. Yeah, I've played them, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can kind of see why you mean everything is brown in these things. But the other thing is Call of Duty is like a juggernaut at the moment. Yeah. And I think it's declining slightly because people are like, why am I going to pay another $60 for this same thing again? Which seems to be the, the thing that's going on. But but the thing is that it's still all an abstraction mm -hmm. behind what you're trying to represent. If you were looking at a board game, you could play a lot of these games on paper, you know, or like with moving pieces around or whatever. And, you know, not all of them, but... Uh, because, I mean, we already talked about how com the complexity comes into it and computers handle right. that better. But when you are looking at these abstractions, at a certain point, you start realizing that these simpler graphics can handle those abstractions just as well, if not better. Because art style can, in fact, convey some of that information that is being abstracted better than perfectly realistic graphics. And so we're moving back to some of these other modes of telling these stories or showing this 
information. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure there's a there's a, a visual art history analog here, mm -hmm. right? Where where people are like, sweet, we figured out perspective and lighting and some cool stuff about how we could make paintings realistic, and maybe we don't have to. Now that it is relatively known how to accomplish these tasks, they're not so special. And you know, one of the, one of the the reasons that graphics are so important in video games, like throughout the the '90s, is that like you're like trying to outdo the other game companies. Um, mm -hmm. But at a certain point, like, well, everyone's just has these beautiful, just like super great light sourcing, these you know high resolution 3D models of things, blah blah blah. Um, these you know enormous teams with these enormous budgets to make these you know um, very cinematic, uh, high quality visual things. And so you're, you're maybe AAA games are still like trying to do that and outdo, uh, outdo each other, but, but a lot of people are like, well, okay, not only could I not compete there, I cannot possibly differentiate myself from there, but since everyone is doing that, it's no longer a good axis on which to differentiate myself. Um, right. And it's becoming easier to emulate that with things like Unity and right, yeah. so on. But it's saying that I could work myself to death producing an undertale in three dimensions where I can walk around and talk to these perfectly realistic looking skeletons that I can talk to, but actually it is excellent in a different aesthetic. Yeah, the idea of a, a very realistic looking undertale is, is obviously um, delightful. <laughs> <laughs> One day there will be an HD remix. Yeah. <laughs> HD remaster. Um, yeah, 20, 20 years from now. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to have to stop us here for a minute because what we did next was talk for another hour. So um, we are going to have to cut this episode in half and pick up again next week. If you have any comments or questions, you can email us at sidequestspodcast at gmail.com.